We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday, celebrating World Health Week, building a fairer and healthier world for everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by Reveal MD. Joining Chuck Buck is physician and attorney Dr. John Hall, pinch hitting for Dr. Eric Reamer. In honor of World Health Week, we welcome Lorraine Fernandez, president of the International Federation of Health Information Associations. She'll update us on ICD 11. The founder of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NamUs, Shannon DeConda, will be here. Nationally recognized coding consultant, Glorianne Bryant, reports on the first quarter coding clinic. Senior healthcare consultant, Albie Cookie, presents the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report. Former CMS official, now IT consultant, Stanley Nockhamson, has the latest regulatory scoop from Washington, and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. We're all here and ready to go, and no one is more ready than the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 456th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by Reveal MD. And you know, Clark, today's lineup kind of sounds like the rock concerts I used to promote. How is that? Well, on today's broadcast, we have ALBA, right? Well, I think the group is actually ABBA, but okay, that's close enough. All right. And then we have Dr. John Hall, right? Like Dr. John, the medicine man. Yeah, I get that. And the WHO. <laughs> the WHO? The WHO is sponsoring the World Health Organization. Who is sponsoring World Health Week? Who? Who is? Who's on first? I just said, I just said, just said who? The World Health Organization. <laughs> and uh, we're very pleased that Reveal MD is sponsoring today's broadcast. And as you heard Clark announce, Dr. John Hall is sitting in this morning for Dr. Eric Reamer. And that is good news. Good morning, John. How are you? I am great, Chuck. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to join you in this amazing lineup today on Talk 10 Tuesday. We're delighted you could substitute today for Dr. Eric Reamer. As you know, we do have a very impressive lineup. Lorraine Fernandez returns with an update on ICD-11. Dr. Alba Cookie has the CDI report, and Shannon DeCon is going to join us later with an update on the E&M guidelines. I know that Shannon will be talking about intentions versus interpretations. Sounds like a lawsuit to me. <laughs> well, you know I love a good lawsuit, but she may take us on a slightly different path today. And Glorianne Bryant has the Talk 10 Tuesday's coding report. And we have much news to report this morning. And we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S. based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, established a face-to-face encounter requirement for certification of eligibility for Medicare home health services by requiring that the certifying physician to document that he or she or a non-physician practitioner working with a physician has seen the patient. The encounter must occur occur within 90 days prior to the start of care or within 30 days after the start of care. Documentation of such an encounter must present on certification for patients that start on or after January 1st of 2011. So this has been going on for a while. The regulation has been fully implemented and providers are complying with the requirements. The expansion of telehealth under waiver 1135, under the waiver Medicare, started paying for office, hospital, and other visits furnished via telehealth across the country by including in patients' place of residence as of March 6, 2020. 
a range of providers such as doctors, nurse practitioners, clinical psychologists, and licensed clinical social workers are able to offer telehealth to their patients. Additionally, the HHA's Office of Inspector General is providing flexibility for healthcare providers to reduce or waive cost sharing for telehealth visits paid by federal healthcare programs. So, can home health and hospice providers use telehealth to meet the face-to-face requirement in the first 90 days? The answer is yes, with some restrictions. The face-to-face has to be with a physician or their assistant that is connected to the patient. There are questions about whether ad litem billing or on a limited basis physicians can bill under another physician's billing number for short periods of time can use telehealth to meet the face-to-face requirements. That being said, telehealth could help home health and hospice providers with a cost-effective and compliant way of meeting billing requirements. With that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell, compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's April 6, 2021. Today, the death toll for the deadly coronavirus stands now at 555,615. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Is your facility falling short of capturing every legitimate dollar of revenue for OB services? Or are you overbilling and increasing your risk for adverse auditor action? Both scenarios can exact a heavy toll on your organization's finances and staff time. By clearing up common areas of confusion and questions, you'll get your ICD-10 CMPCS coding on the right track. In an upcoming ICD-10 Monitor webcast, coding expert Carrie Greenwood takes on the complexities inherent with ICD-10 CMPCS coding for OB services. By tapping into her trusted instruction and insights, you'll be equipped to apply coding guidelines specific to OB diagnoses and procedures. The result? More accurate, complete, and compliant code assignments. The webcast is this Thursday, April 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register to attend Obstetrics ICD-10 CMPCS Coding. Getting it right, complete, and compliant. Here now with the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report is Glorianne Bryant. Good morning. Hope you're having a great day. The American Hospital Association Central Office is the official U.S. clearinghouse on medical coding for the proper use of ICD-10-CM PCS systems and also level one HICPICS or CPT-4 codes for hospital providers and certain level two codes for hospital physicians and other health professionals. So that takes us to the first quarter of AHA Coding Clinic on ICD-10-CM PCS. It was released in about mid last month and was published with the most recent COVID-19 coding instructions based upon frequently asked questions or FAQs. And they also released the January 1st, 2021 update to the official coding guidelines for coding and reporting. And that does focus on ICD-10. I, excuse me, that does also focus on the COVID-19 coding. In addition, there's a series of Q&A called Ask the Editor in this publication for the first quarter. And that provides a series of coding scenarios, coding questions with answers and guidance that's included to respond to those inquiries. I want to mention that the FAQ on COVID-19 coding is a collaboration with AHIMA, 
and AHA. And since the public health emergency, the PHE, there has been regular updates to COVID-19 coding. It's very important that we all in our healthcare industry and our staff keep up to date with the COVID-19 coding guidance as it has changed over many months this past year. I would probably recommend checking that FAQ every one to two weeks to see if there's anything new or information has been revised in the guidance. The most recent update to the Q1 coding clinic edition was for March 1st on the FAQ for coding of COVID-19, March 1st update. Now remember there are some new codes also that started January 1st, so COVID-19 FAQ builds upon that. There are a new code, as you may be aware, for pneumonia due to coronavirus, the J1282 code. And under the Ask the Editor section, there are questions regarding the proper ICD-10 CM codes for pseudo seizures, a diagnosis, um, situations where we have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and the patient also has uh, periperipheral neuropathy and the coding of toxic and hepatic encephalopathy diagnosis. And then there are a series of procedural coding questions that have been presented in the Q1 edition, such as placement of a spacer for decompression, the placement of a sentinel embolic protection device, and the total proctocolectomy with a J pouch creation. So some interesting procedure guidance that'll be very helpful to us. The AHA Central Office Coding Clinic for ICD-10, CM, and PCS can be accessed at the AHA Central Office website. You do have to have a paid subscription for the coding clinic publication. The added bonus here is that you can submit questions free. You need to go online to their online portal at the AHA Coding Clinic and you can submit coding questions. It's a great opportunity for coding professionals, CDI professionals. Now, ICD-10 Monitor has released an on-demand webinar dedicated to the Q1 2021 issue. So you can sign up for that as well and get additional information. I'll pass it back to John now. Thanks very much, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you, Glorianne. That was Glorianne Bryan. Glorianne is a nationally recognized HIM leader and speaker. Chuck? Thank you, John, and thank you so very much, Glorianne Bryan. Now's the time for RegWatch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockinson. Good morning, Stanley. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Oh, absolutely, Chuck. Good morning to everyone. Yesterday, April 5th, 2021, was a major day for healthcare interoperability. The information blocking requirements of the Cures Act, actually the prohibitions against information blocking, went into effect for health IT developers of certified health IT, health information networks, health information exchanges, and health care providers. These provisions prohibit these entities from engaging in practices that are likely to interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information, or EHI. 
For now, EHI is considered the data elements that are part of the U.S. core data set for interoperability, known as U.S. CDI. After 24 months, the EHI definition is expanded and represents the same electronic protected health information that a patient would have the right to request a copy of, pursuant to the HIPAA privacy regulations. The regulations published by ONC provide numerous examples of practices which could be considered information blocking. Some of these are restricting authorized access, exchange, or use under applicable state or federal law of such information for treatment and other permitted purposes, including transactions between certified health information technologies, implementing health IT in non-standard ways that are likely to substantially increase the complexity or burden of accessing, exchanging, or using EHI, implementing health IT in ways that are likely to restrict the access, exchange, or use of EHI with respect to exporting complete information sets or in transactioning between health IT systems or leading to fraud, waste, and abuse or impede innovations and advancements in health information access, exchange, and use, including care delivery enabled by health IT. So this is a big opening of health IT information between entities. Now, ONC is also identified as required by the CARES Act, reasonable and necessary activities that do not constitute information blocking. There are eight categories, protecting privacy, protecting security, infeasibility, health IT performance, content, and manner fees and licensing. If the conditions for these exceptions are met, um, these are would not be considered information blocking. They're all detailed in the regulations. ONC will enforce these provisions through a complaint process. Meanwhile, CMS is moving on its regular schedule for the issuance of the annual proposed rules for inpatient PPS and other provider payment schedules. Look for these rules to be published shortly, probably in the next month or so. The latest CMS interoperability rule, which was developed and finalized by the Trump administration but not published, is still under review by the current administration. It was a proposed rule, but the final rule has not yet been published. It is uncertain when that will be released and if any changes will be made from the proposed rule. And in the latest privacy and security regulation news, OCR has extended the comment date for its proposed rules on changing HIPAA privacy provisions. This date has now been extended to May 6th from March 22nd. OCR is giving the industry more time to comment on these extensive changes to privacy. Back to you, Dr. Hall. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder and principal at Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, John. And Stanley Nockerson, thank you so very much for that excellent report. Intentions versus interpretations sounds like a lawsuit. But when the discussion is about evaluation and management, that is, E&M guidelines, well, it's a whole different story. And now for more on that subject, we are joined by Shannon DeConda, who has our Tuesday focus on E&M guidelines. Shannon? Thank you, John. You know, we've been using these new E&M guidelines now for 96 days. Kind of feels like a year. Um, but if you had the ease and efficiency that we were told we were going to have, 
I don't think we'd still be stumbling over all these questions that we're still getting on a daily and weekly basis. I think we were able to process the changes with good intent that the AMA made them with. Then, of course, yes, we could, but I don't think that same good intent is the one in which they will be processed with at the carrier level, which I think is where we kind of have this buffer of difference of opinion. Is that due to malfeasance? Or is it due to the old standby thinking of carrier versus physician? Personally, I think it's due to literal interpretations of the rules. You see that that first column of the new MDM table, which is really the table of risk, it's the complexity of the presenting problem. There are multiple drivers in that column, but if you get down to it, the two main drivers are chronic and acute, right? So in that column with chronic and acute, within the grading of the complexity of the problem, we have the chronicity of the problem and the acuity. And it becomes easier to reach higher levels of complexity within chronic condition category than acute conditions. As the chronic needs only not be stable, but when you have an acute problem, it requires complicating factors and systemic involvements. However, AMA has now included a new definition with chronic conditions, and it's one that says that the patient should have the problem or would have the problem for a year or until death. So now I ask you, friends and auditors out there, is it incumbent upon the provider to prove this within the documentation? And let me say, I'm, talk I'm not talking about those encounters in which the provider says the patient has the chronic condition, right? So if they say the patient has chronic back pain, I'm not talking about those instances. Let's talk examples. Say glaucoma or diabetes. The average person realizes that these are chronic conditions that one person will have, say, the rest of their life, right? And while they may become controlled, they're lifelong conditions. Therefore, when the provider states the patient has these conditions, I feel pretty confident the carrier will count these as chronic conditions. However, can I, for, can I from a compliance perspective, raise pretty confident to confident? Yes, HPI. Duration. We don't score history anymore, but if I ensure that I encourage my providers to document duration by having duration documented, I can ensure from a compliance perspective that I have duration documented to support chronicity. But what about patients with things like hearing loss or low back pain? These are problems that could be chronic or acute in nature. I'll say one problem that I personally have found in the first 96 days with this new definition of chronic is working with providers when I tell them that the patient they are managing for low back pain, I'm going to have to downcode because they didn't say the problem was chronic. And the documentation includes a duration of less than a year. Say maybe they said the patient had the problem for three months. Therefore, I have to categorize the problem as an acute problem. Since there are no systemic or complicating factors, I now have to categorize a presenting problem as low instead of moderate, even though I can show that the problem is not 
at, at a chronic stable point if I was able to say it's chronic because they're not at their treatment goals. Maybe we're even increasing the patient's meds and sending them to physical therapy. Herein lies the frustration. The AMAs change while well-intended, purposeful, and patient care-driven. The interpretation that will be made from the verbiage used will not be used in the same well-intentioned, purposeful way. Moral of the story, be purposeful and well-intentioned in your documentation and tell the patient's story, focusing on the soap note. And Chuck and John, I'll give it back to you. Thanks, Shannon. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, or as we know them, name us. Chuck? Thank you, John, very much, and thank you, Shannon, again, for being on our program. Making her debut appearance here on Talk 10 Tuesday is Dr. Alba Cookie, who has the Talk 10 Tuesday CDR reporting. Good morning, Alba. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Medical record review is perhaps the core responsibility of the CDI professional. During the review, CDI professionals comb the chart for incomplete, imprecise, illegible, conflicting, or absent documentation of diagnosis, procedures, and treatments, as well as supporting clinical indicators. Their goal is to cultivate a medical record that stands alone as an accurate story of a patient encounter, providing a full picture of the patient's illness and record of treatment. A complete record allows for continuity of care, reliable collection of mortality and morbidity data, quality statistics, and accurate reimbursement. The first and ultimate reason for excellent documentation is improved patient care through clear communication between providers and an accurate picture of the patient's medical situation and treatment. It is essential to capture all the comorbidities conditions seen in patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. A variety of clinical scenarios appear in our hospitals across the country, with symptoms ranging from mild to ventilated patients to death. Since coding advice regarding COVID-19 is frequently updated, it is recommended to check official coding sources to ensure any advice published here is still current. If the provider documents a death definite COVID-19 diagnosis, but after discharge, the test results come back negative, it is recommended to query the provider for clarification. Patients being admitted for COVID-19 might present with various manifestations and complications. It is important to report all of them because it impacts the severity of illness and risk of mortality. Some COVID-19 patients have been reported to experience coagulopathy and thrombosis, deep vein thrombosis, PE, or even stroke. Furthermore, suppose there is evidence of both bleeding and clot formation. In that case, the patient may have disseminated intravascular coagulation, an MCC that will increase the severity of illness and risk of mortality. COVID-19-associated coagulopathy is reported using code U071, COVID-19, and other specified coagulation defects, D68.8. If skin failure due to the COVID-19-associated coagulopathy is documented, report COVID-19, other specified coagulation defects, and other disorders of the skin and subcutaneous tissue in diseases classified elsewhere, L99. 
if specified as disseminated intravascular coagulation due to COVID-19, assign UO7.1 and disseminated intravascular coagulation. Not all COVID-19-associated coagulopathy progresses to disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Up to 70% of the most severely ill patients will SARS has features of disseminated intravascular coagulation. Unlike sepsis-associated patients with COVID-19-associated disseminated intravascular coagulation uh, have relatively mild thrombocytopenia and would usually not meet classic criteria for disseminated intravascular coagulation. It is now clear that among hospitalized patients with COVID-19, respiratory failure, pneumonia, and sepsis are frequent complications, with some patients developing multi-organ failure and severe systemic disease. The most common and organ dysfunction linked with sepsis are shock, acute kidney injury, encephalopathy, disseminated intravascular coagulation, non-diabetic hyperglycemia, and liver dysfunction. Thanks, Alba. That was Dr. Alba Kuki. Dr. Kuki is a CDI authority and a well-known contributor to healthcare blogs, newsletters, and podcasts. Currently, she is a member of the ACTUS Leadership Council. Chuck? Thanks, John. And Alba, thank you again very much. And you can read Dr. Alba Cookie's report on CDI in today's edition of ICD-10 Monitoring. Coming up next, the latest update on ICD-11. It's coming, but first, this important message. Dramatic, constant change is now the norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In-person conferences are out, yet it's as important as ever to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now you can get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts, covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. Coming up next, Lorraine Fernandez joins us with an update on ICD-11. It's our lead story. Today's lead story is sponsored by Reveal MD. If your hospital or health system is looking to capitalize on an outpatient CDI program, and if you want an easier, faster way to identify HCC gaps and more, discover the Reveal MD Risk Adjustment Tool. It finds revenue potential by the enterprise, specialty, provider, and patient in just four mouse clicks. See the Reveal MD tool in action at reveal-md.com. This week at ICD-10 Monitor and Tucked in Tuesday, we're observing World Health Week, and therefore it's only fitting that we would report on ICD-11. Here now with an update on ICD-11 is the president of the International Federation of Health Information Associations, Lorraine Fernandez. Good morning, Lorraine. Thank you so much, Chuck, and what a great week to have this invitation to be able to share with you what IFEMA has accomplished already in 2021. On February 10th, we released our newest white paper, which discusses, and let's have the drum roll here, 
ICD-11 planning and adoption. I know some of those listening undoubtedly are groaning, as in the U.S., it probably feels like we just finished ICD-10, and as Glorianne shared, we get quarterly updates from the AHA. But the rest of the world adopted ICD-10 decades ago. Medicine and technology have obviously changed dramatically in those 30 years. So visit our website, ifhema.org, to see the white paper and download it, IFHEMA Fosters Planning for ICD-11 Adoption with Global Case Studies. Yes, there are case studies from around the globe that we can all learn from. So the IFHEMA board believes that quality health information underpins all facets of health policy, delivery system design, patient engagement, and the advancement of health and healthcare. Those are global goals. They're goals that IFEMA marches to and our membership in executing their roles and responsibilities certainly supports. So the white paper and the global case studies really delve into some specific challenges and accomplishments to date. It talks about patient engagement, technology, planning, workforce development, education, obviously a big part of planning for ICD-11, the transition from ICD-10 to ICD-11, and field testing and implementation. Some great case studies that explore each of these. So make sure you go to the ifhema.org, sign up, and download the white paper. This was written from a global perspective, but there are U.S. participants in the writings. You'll see the case studies and the general content that come from Australia, Barbados, Canada, Egypt, Japan, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Korea, Nigeria, Spain, and last but certainly not least, the U.S. So there's certainly something in this white paper for everybody as we begin to consider and to plan and to discuss ICD-11. Thanks to the World Health Organization, there's a wealth of knowledge on their website about training, deadlines, what applies to morbidity and mortality. So go to their website. I think I'd share lastly that WHO is developing an ICD-11 education and micro-certification course that will come out of the new WHO Academy. So stay tuned to when WHO actually launches this and the micro-certification that they planned around ICD-11. I hope you go to the website. I equally hope you'll stay tuned next week when Margaret Skirka will join Talk 10 and explore what the U.S. is doing, particularly the National Centers for Vital and Health Statistics, where Margaret has voice and vote, and how they've already begun progressing the discussion and some actions. So with that, over to you, John. Thank you, Lorraine. That was Lorraine Fernandez. Lorraine is the president of the International Federation of Health Information Associations. And back to you, Chuck. Thanks, John, and thank you again, Lorraine. That's going to be a wrap for our 456 live edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Gloria and Brian, Shannon DeConda, Dr. Alva Corky, Tim Powell, Lorraine Fernandez, who reported our lead story, and a special thanks to you, Dr. John Hall, for substituting today for Dr. Eric Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you for being with us today.
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.